Well, I'm wondering, as we start off this morning, if you've ever heard of something called culturomics. Anyone? Evidently, it is a fairly new study of human culture and cultural trends, so I read this week, uh, by means of quantitative analysis of words and phrases. And how that happens is that books and ancient artifacts get digitized, that is, put into electronic form so that computer analysis can be done. Google alone has digitized more than 30 million books. And what I read is that the sweep of this research goes as far back right now to the 1800s and allows a rather unique look into word use in culture. For example, the words ice cream began to show up a whole lot starting in 1910 when GE introduced what was called the Powered Home Icebox. Suddenly, books and papers and that kind of thing began to talk more about ice cream. Another example is the word pasta. Supposedly, it took a hit in the late 1990s. Do you remember the, the big fad diet that came out in the 90s? The Atkins diet. And so, supposedly... The analysis shows that pasta kind of dropped out of use compared to what it had been. Some researchers believe that that culturomics can reveal what's important to us by by trends that they find in words and phrases. Pasta became less important, and so, according to some researchers, has God. A search shows that the word God has been in steady decline for decades and is now used only about one-third as much in American writing as it was in the early 1800s. Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, no surprise, right? You know, when we kicked off this series a couple Sundays ago, we looked at that familiar text where, where Jesus told his disciples... I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of darkness, will not prevail or stand against it. You remember Peter had made the declaration to Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to the truth of that declaration, then told his followers what he was going to do. He would build his church. I think that in our age, that is a truth that we perhaps need to hear again and again as the people of God. It is, it is a proclamation of victory. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And there is nothing that is going to withstand the presence and the conquering force of my church, not even the gates of hell. They will not stand against it. Jesus knew the evil that abounds on the earth, So he would build his church. Jesus knew the rejection of God by humanity. The rejection of God as rightful king. So he would build his church. Jesus knew that that God was not worshipped and adored by all whom he had created. And so his plan was to build his church. And his church 
His church would be a, a change agent. Tell me again, what is his church? Or should I say, who is his church? We are. God's people, the people who are redeemed, they have become the church of Jesus Christ. And that church, Jesus had plans for it to be a change agent by living out a different allegiance in the world. His church would prevail against the powers of hell, the powers of darkness, the powers of evil that hold the hearts of people captive in a prison of self-worship. And the gates of that prison would not stand against the church. Paul wrote to the Colossians these words, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, that image in Scripture, that place, that power, that control, that territory that is anti-God and anti-everything that God stands for. God has rescued His people from that place, brought them into the kingdom of His Son, the one whom He loves, in whom, Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, the mission of the church is that we live out that truth. The truth that we've been rescued by God. By putting our faith and and, and, and confidence and staking our lives on His death and resurrection, our sin of of self-worship, our sin of rejection of who God is and His rightful place in our lives, that sin has been forgiven. And we have been restored to the relationship with God for which we were created. Does that cause any excitement at all in you this morning? Okay, just checking. Just checking. Couldn't see it in your faces. It is in living out the truth of what God has done for us. Can I say it this way? That we participate in setting others free. It is not our task to set others free. We can't set others free. But he has called us, his church, to participate in the mission of setting others free. And the way in which the church does that, I suggested to you a couple of Sundays ago, is subversively. We just kind of sneak into people's lives and rather than announcing the kingdom of God is upon you, we live out the values of the kingdom before them. And by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit in which He indwells us, to live this life that we could not do on our own strength, we begin to live a life that causes people to look at us and say, that's different, precisely. It's subversive. It is quiet. Remember the definition of subvert? It's a systematic attempt to overthrow or undermine a government or political system by persons working secretly from within. We live in this place that is the domain of darkness and we are working secretly in the power of God's Spirit who lives in us to live in such a way that the captives who have not experienced the light of God and the freedom that He has given us in Christ 
begin to look at us and may say, I'm interested. I want to know about that life. That is the way, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of God advances in the spiritual battle. God's people, the church, they live their lives faithfully and humbly committed to the values of the kingdom. And they rely upon God to use the example of their lives to show those who are still captive there is a better way to live. God's people do not fight the spiritual battle with earthly weapons. Some of those weapons might be position, prestige, political influence, power and force. Those are earthly weapons. Those are weapons of the earthly kingdom. The church of Jesus, the people of God, they live in such a way that the kingdom of God, which Jesus described as a seed that starts out small and begins to grow into something big, or as a bit of yeast that that works its way through the entire loaf of bread, God's people commit to the seemingly lesser values. Values that perhaps quite often are not valued or esteemed or recognized or appreciated in the culture in which we live. Values like personal surrender. I can give up my rights. Admission of weakness. Gentleness. Moral integrity. And a huge value. Prayer. God's people. Pray. Because the values of the kingdom of God are rooted in the king's character. Does that make sense? The way that we live and the things that are important to us, we do that because... God has revealed himself to us in a certain way and we understand that those are the things that are important to the one whom we follow. So this morning we're going to turn to that prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray. Ancient words, as we just sang a few minutes ago, recorded and preserved for us, God's people, throughout the ages. You know, this prayer is mentioned in every major catechism in the church. You can go as far back as we have documents and you will find this prayer. We refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. It's interesting to know that because catechism in the earliest days of the church, well it was and it still is, Christian doctrine that is taught in question and answer format primarily for those in the beginning who could not read. And so all the major catechisms of the Christian faith include this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's usually alongside of the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed. It is ancient, ancient words indeed, and yet I think incredibly important for us as God's people. Prayer, you remember, was was a part of the religious worship of the Romans and the Greeks in Jesus' day. And it was certainly a significant part of the Jewish tradition. Jesus' day, three formal times of prayer were encouraged. But Jesus' followers 
saw him praying. And they knew that John the Baptist, who was somehow connected in their minds and their understanding with this, this new era, this new thinking that Jesus was bringing, John was connected to that, and he taught his disciples to pray. And so in Luke 11, he records for us that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Evidently, there was something different in the way that Jesus prayed, something different perhaps in the way that John the Baptist prayed. They knew as Jews that prayer was important. But there was something more to prayer in the way that Jesus prayed. And I think, I think that that could be true for us as well. We know, don't we, that prayer is important. But I wonder if we've really paid attention. I wonder if I have really paid attention. I won't put that on you. To what he has to teach us in this prayer. This prayer is so familiar. We know it so well, don't we? we? We say it in all kinds of settings and there are all different kinds of translations. What is this prayer really saying? I've come to believe, as I've been looking at it again and studying and praying through this, that, that when we understand the heart of this prayer and begin to allow it to shape our prayer lives, I think the Spirit of God will empower in us those values of the kingdom that will begin to make us more and more into the people, the church that God has called us to be. Those people who are living and standing against the powers of darkness. It's experiencing the gates of hell, according to Jesus, falling before the power of the Spirit. We'll begin to see things change in our lives and and those around us because we're praying. I almost hesitate to say it this way, but I'm gonna. Because we're praying in a way that I think calls to the heart of God. And as we've said before, this is not the only prayer to pray. Jesus' words are not saying to us, every prayer you ever pray must be this prayer. Because we immediately run into other prayers that are throughout the scripture. It is the priorities of the prayer. It is the value that is placed on certain things in this prayer that I think make it so transformative for the people of God. But, let me just say this again. But when Jesus' followers asked him to instruct them in prayer, this is the prayer that he gave them. Could Jesus have given them a lot of other prayers? I'm guessing that he probably could have. But this is the prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. This is the result of that request. So I think there's something really important about this prayer. So let's stand together. We're going to read from Matthew 6. It's the the larger context. Uh, Jesus has been working through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he's been talking about a number of practices of religious people. So then he comes to the topic of prayer. And we'll read these introductory words before he teaches them the prayer. 
So let's read these words together. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us. Go ahead and be seated. So how many of you have ever prayed that prayer before? In how many different versions? 3, 5, 10, 33? Yeah! We know the prayer. How often is that prayer prayed, including those words that we read before it and the words after it? That forgiveness thing that, frankly, I'd rather not deal with. Probably not so much, right? Again, I think the words that come before and the words come after emphasize for us, and and we'll, we'll get to that along the way, the heart that, that, is, that is behind this prayer. The heart that I think God calls us to and that his spirit will empower us to live out if we, as his people, are willing to recognize the importance of it. Okay, so let's take a look at some more words. Rachel, can we put that next slide up? We just heard these words from Jesus. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Or they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So I want you to talk to your neighbor. What is Jesus saying about the nature and the purpose of prayer? What it is and is not. Go ahead. Just have a little chat for a couple of minutes. What is He saying based on those words that we read there from verse 8 in the text? Okay. Man, I hate to interrupt. This is great. You should have my vantage point. Man, facial expressions, animated. It's great. What do you think? It's not for show. Keep it simple, keep it honest, and keep it up. Amen, let's go home. No. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. I like that. What else? What else did you come up with? Observations. Wow. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, that's that's just not the spirit there, is it? Okay, okay. I like that too. I like that too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which was probably what, what Jesus had in mind when he was, when he was speaking those words was the, the, the public prayers that were made by the religious leaders and made for, for the show. Uh, lacked all kinds of, of depth and, and, and relationship. Wow. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Did you get that back there? This is God. Don't BS him. (laughs) Just in case that didn't make it to the tape. Thank you, Diane. (laughs) So good. Wow. Yeah, good. Good observation. Zach, you want to add to it? Absolutely. (laughs) 
flowing out of that relationship with God as Father. It's interesting, the word that we translate in English as babbling, the one that we've read up here as babbling, it's an unusual one. It's, <clears throat> it's not found in a lot of the early manuscripts. Linguists think that it comes from an Aramaic word that, that means an idle word or a, or a useless word. Isn't that interesting when you think about what Jesus said? Because at a quick read, you might think, well, Jesus is condemning repetition in prayer or, or, or long prayers. I don't think so. Because he was certainly repetitious in his prayer in the garden with his father, that, that one prayer that we have uh, a window into. Um, he was often out in places with his father praying uh, a couple of times throughout the night. Those were long periods of prayer. Uh, certainly, I, I think what Jesus is driving is he wants his followers to understand that prayer is not about, it's not about getting things not about meaningless repeti- you know, repetition that, that, that are offered, words that are offered in, in hope of maybe gaining something. So babbling is a waste of time if we use that definition of useless. I'm struck with his comment, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him, which just begs the question, well, then should I ask? I think Jesus would say, yes. Yes, you should. But he wants his followers to begin at a different place. And that's where I want us to end this morning as we prepare for communion together. We'll tie more of this together next week. But he said this. This then is how you should pray. Some translations capture that as when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed. Or holy is your name. This is the the one takeaway point that I hope that you will take away with you this morning. To have God as our Father is the greatest privilege of our prayer life. To have God as our Father is the greatest privilege of our prayer life. One of the things that can, I think, easily be missed <clears throat> when we read the Scriptures because it's, it's the printed words and, and we're not there and we don't get some of the facial expressions. I think what we miss is that when Jesus spoke these words, our Father in heaven, He rocked the world of His followers. Just rocked their world. Certainly the use of the plural pronoun our, would have been comfortable and and even expected, probably more so than for us. We tend to privatize our prayers and make it more of an individual thing. For the first century Jew, Jew, there there was a keen awareness of being part of God's chosen people. We are in this together. So there was much more a sense of of we lived out in their faith. But to address Yahweh as Father, to address the one whose name the scribes would not even write because it was so holy, to address that one in such intimate, personal language, that was outrageous. Not only was it outrageous, they would have been thinking, that's dangerous. But Jesus exhorts his followers to do just that. Our Father. You remember Paul's teaching in Romans 8. 
Because of Christ's atoning work for us on the cross, we have received a spirit of adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, as children of God. My friends, we have the amazing privilege of addressing God as Father. Paul even goes a step further using that word Abba, Aramaic, for Daddy, for Papa. That's a pretty intimate term. Probably the same word that Jesus used when he addressed his Papa. You know, it's not uncommon in church circles to hear references to God as the Father of all people. It's a nice thing to say, but it's not true. There is no doubt that God is the creator of all people. But the status of being his child is a privilege that's given to those who believe and place their lives in God's hands based on what he has done for them through his son Jesus. Privilege. Big privilege. And here's the thing. You want to talk about subversive? I think this is hugely subversive. Because we live in a culture that believes less and less in the existence of God. Or if God does exist, he can be found in many different forms. All paths of faith lead to the same place, right? And in the midst of it all then, you've got these yahoos, sometimes referred to as Christians, who not only believe that God exists, but they have a relationship with him as their heavenly father. Talk about being culturally out of step. And so, what happens when we as God's people live that out? Do we shout it? Do we announce it? Do we throw it in people's faces? Or is perhaps a better way for them to observe our lives as we live in relationship to this one who is our heavenly Father. Wow. I was keenly aware of this yesterday. I did a wedding. There was probably 250 people there. And, and I would say that <clears throat> probably the, the majority of them would not claim to be followers of Jesus. It was not a church crowd, if you will. And I was, of course, asked to pray several times throughout the day. And I was aware of the fact that I was addressing my God as Father. And I found myself wondering, I wonder how this sounds to these folks, that I'm addressing God as Father. My sisters, my brothers, do we, do we think of this amazing privilege Jesus has given us permission to address the one who rules the universe as daddy. That is a privilege that simply ought to take our breath away. And then, of course, the statement that comes after that is, holy is your name. Your name is holy. Uh, We'll do more with this next Sunday, but all throughout the Old Testament, you know, when when the the name of the Lord is referred to, it is a a reference to his his being. It is a a reference to his character. And 
I sometimes wonder if Jesus, knowing the, the human tendency of our hearts, put that in as a reminder and as, as a balance. I can think of times in my relationship to my own dad when in the comfortableness of that relationship, I crossed the line and was very disrespectful. And, and isn't that easy for us to do? in relationships where we know so well. So the, so the tension, if you will, but it's a good one, and it's one that causes us to grow and, and to wrestle with what's in our hearts and with what is in the heart of God, is to recognize this amazing God as giving us the privilege to address Him as Father. Nobody but the children of God have that right in this world. And yet, to remember who He is and how His character defines or should define both our praying and our living. Today is my daughter's one-year wedding anniversary. Last year, she married Andrew, and that young man had the nerve to take her away to England. But I was thinking this week, just because of where I've been thinking and praying and spending my time, of the conversation that Kelsey and I had together probably six months before her her wedding day, and I think I've told some of you this, she said, she asked me, she said, so dad, would you, would you be okay if you didn't officiate my wedding? And I think she asked that because I'd had a part in her three older brothers. And I said, well, yeah, that would be just fine. And then she said these words, I just want you to be my daddy. Oh, my heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. And I thought, what about God's heart? Do we, do we revel in Him as our daddy? Is that the starting point of, of our praying? It's really, the, it's really kind of the, the position or the platform from which we begin. We'll do more with that next week. In terms of... of what that looks like, the qualities of, of good fathers and how that's addressed in the character and the holiness of God. So what I would ask you to do this week is to be thinking in terms of God as your father. How do you think of him as your father? What does that look like in your mind? And how does that translate into your life and how you live on a daily basis in relationship to your Father. Perfect in every way. Theologians like to talk about God's perfections. The character of God, the greatest character of God, is described by the word holiness, which means He is perfect in everything that He says and everything that He does. What kind of a dad is that? Our dad, my dad, your dad, as followers of Jesus, our dad.